I'm 44. I never really thought about that before it happened. Not that I didn't think I'd get here, and sure, I'd thought about being older and going gray and all the things that come with age, but those numbers never felt real. They were just numerical milestones that were always distant and inconsequential until they happened. And it might be because time works differently for people like me. And as a child, people would notice. I'd often laugh with people who told me I was a dreamer or I had my head in the clouds or I marched to the beat of my own drum because on the surface, what's wrong with that, right? But life has a way of casting two sides to every coin. When a parent suggests you're lazy or when a teacher insists you're not putting in enough effort or when those closest to you believe you're not living up to your potential, it's easy to feel inferior, inadequate, undisciplined, and hopelessly disorganized, especially when these emotions are ones that others have reinforced. Because for people like us, those words carry more weight than we can possibly imagine, and while the words scramble with the memories, there's an emotional residue that always remains. Only a select few truly comprehend what it's like to possess immense capability in one moment, only to confront a seemingly straightforward task and witness your mind abruptly seize, as if it's locked in a self-imposed stasis, or the shame of knowing that those who believed in you will eventually lose hope because you're never going to get it together. And it was a burden I carried. This, in and of itself, is the loneliest feeling in the world. But the one advantage I did have growing up was I knew I was different. I wasn't equipped with skills towards social etiquette or, or adapting to the world as it was constituted. I was shy and didn't want to make mistakes. I possessed an uncanny ability to read people, discerning their emotions through subtle cues, such as their reactions, tones of voice, or even the pause before their words would find expression. People became my compass, guiding me through the labyrinth of social interaction, facilitating my learning of social discourse and etiquette. I wielded humor and charm effortlessly, knowing precisely how to prevent others from disliking me. I wore the mask, and it fit me like a second skin. As I transitioned into adulthood, there were days where everything perfectly aligned. Days when I could outperform, outthink, and outshine anyone in any endeavor. During those moments... I believed I had finally unraveled the enigma of my life, that the days of self-doubt, haunted by echoing voices of disappointment, had finally receded into the background. But inevitably, that shadow would reemerge, and on those days, it took every ounce of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual strength I had just to live my life. I never considered myself lazy or unintelligent. I always knew I was talented, yet I stumbled over the simplest of tasks. I struggled to get things done, and because of this, I struggled to feel complete. It wasn't until I neared 40 that I received a life-altering diagnosis, adult ADHD. This revelation fundamentally reshaped my understanding of myself. I wasn't defective. See, ADHD does not absolve me of the responsibility for the shame I carried in childhood, or the projects left unfinished, or the degree I abandoned because of the crippling anxiety of wondering if I could live up to whatever happens afterwards. 
It doesn't absolve me of the forgotten tasks that hurt my loved ones or even the things that came easily to others. I can't use ADHD to excuse my struggles, but it does provide meaning. It clarifies why I worked so hard to fall so short, why life often felt defined by failure, why I disappointed even as I desperately wanted to succeed. ADHD will never justify shortcomings, but it illuminates the reasons behind them. My diagnosis lifted a burden of self-blame and helped me understand myself for the first time. And in learning about my brain's little quirks, I learned to love all the little nuances of it and the picture that sometimes others were amazed I could see. Simply put, ADHD is never an excuse, but it is an explanation. And if you or a loved one has ever wondered about life with adult ADHD before the answers or just reciprocated some of what I was talking about, then this episode provides an incredibly personal narrative you may find comforting. Today I talk with Shane Thrapp, who is an ADHD coach, and although we had different childhoods and roads into early adulthood, we both had one thing in common. We are both diagnosed later in life with ADHD, and it's a pretty raw conversation. I really don't want to call it part one and part two, but if I was going to look at it that way, I guess the first part mainly focuses on personal backgrounds and childhood struggles and the experiences and the journey to a diagnosis for both Shane and I. And then part two will focus more on the management part or looking for strategies for living with ADHD. But let's get on with it. And I really hope you do enjoy the show and maybe pick up something from it. Next, the Shane Thrap with Jayberg Show. Watch out. You might get what you're after. Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, I get to welcome Shane Thrapp to the show. Shane is the founder of Creating Order from Chaos and an ADHD coach and business consultant. He works to empower people with ADHD to find their authentic selves and collaborates with companies on neurodivergent inclusivity and accommodations. He also works as the operations director at the nonprofit Men's ADHD Support Group as a driving force furthering their mission of supporting men with ADHD. Shane, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have been looking forward to this. I appreciate you having me on it. We've had a lot of fun conversations so far, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It'll be good. So I'd seen you around in some podcast groups and your background caught my eye. So I decided to check you out on some podcasts and I came away impressed. And then I went to your website, Creating Order from Chaos, and was pretty struck by it. I was pretty struck by the fact that we kind of have a little bit of a similar path as far as maybe in some of the ways we grew up, but mostly with regard to our ADHD diagnosis later in life. 
So I kind of wanted to delve into that a little bit to start. We can talk about your upbringing and living with something that you didn't really know you had and then how it affected you finding out about it later in life and how you were able to transition from that. So my upbringing is pretty out there and I didn't realize for a very long time that it was really out there. Like this is my normal, uh, not just for me though, but also because of the, the friends and family that I had, this was the normal. So I was raised in the rural South in Northeast Texas. The town that I lived near to was around 2000 people. And I lived 20 miles away from it down multiple dirt roads. So to say I was rural is an understatement. Um, I, you know, I grew up on 40 acres of forest and uh, farmland. And my dad was essentially a jack of all trades. He was, he would raise crops. He would, you know, take care of horses and cows. We had pigs. We had chickens, a lot of chickens. My dad actually loved chickens. Uh, and it was really weird for me. I mean, I didn't know it was weird for me, but I just didn't really fit in. Yeah. And that caused a lot of different issues. Because I didn't know I had ADHD nor was on the, that I was on the spectrum, when I would try to fit in with the people around me, there was just always these things that were off. And I know now it was because I wanted to fit in to the social circles around me, but my brain wasn't programmed to really understand the neurotypical social circles around me. And so growing up in that kind of environment was pretty confusing for in a large number of different reasons. And I acted out quite a bit. Mm. I was a difficult ass child for a long time. (laughs) And it did not help that my father was alcoholic and an abusive Hmm. father. And there were a large number of different issues there because I'm also fairly certain he was, um, he had ADHD as well. And when we would clash, when I wouldn't meet the expectation that he had for me, the same expectation that his father, who was also abusive, had for him, he would lash out. And especially if he was drunk, it was so weird to be in that kind of situation because not only was he the villain of my story, he's also the hero of my story. Mm-hmm. And that's because my dad has saved my life multiple times as a child. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, growing up in the rural South is a, it's a, it's an interesting situation. Think Australia, but. <laughs> Smaller animals. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, so get you know. So growing up in that kind of environment meant we dealt with snakes, we dealt with uh, bears, we we dealt with different types of animals, boars, and and you know, there's an inherent kind of danger in that kind of realm. Yeah. And so, like, there's stories that I have of being bitten by snakes and my dad doing that thing that everybody says you're not supposed to do of like cutting open the wound and sucking the poison out yeah and by the age of 11 i had been bitten by three different poisonous snakes and i never went to the hospital for those because hospitals cost money and we didn't have money yeah and there's a situation where like 
We had a black bear take a deer from us, and my dad got mad and shot at it. Didn't do anything to it because it was a small-ass rifle, and then he had like had to tell me to run while he stood there while it was running at him and pulled out a three fifty-seven and dropped it. And when you are living in that kind of situation where you've seen your father do all of these amazing feats of strength or daring or you know staring down a bear or anything like that, and you also still have to deal with the other side of that coin when he would get enraged and hit you with an electrical cord to wake yeah. you up. And that was my childhood. Not only that, though, I also lived in a, a hugely religious area. Mm-hmm. And we went to a church that eventually found we found out it was a cult. <laughs> and I was raised in that kind of environment, yeah. too. Texas had a few of those, so... Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but that's, you know, that's got to be difficult to navigate, too, because you have, you, you're on the spectrum as well, which makes fitting in uh, even more difficult trying to read people and stuff like that. It was different for me. I was always very good at, at reading people. And I, I was never diagnosed on, on the spectrum or anything. So, it, you know, it was, it was later in life that it, I was told I had ADHD. But, you know, growing up, I definitely had a different childhood than you as far as uh, my parents. I lived, you know, stone throw from New York City. You know, more of the issues we would have had growing up was, you know, my, my mother, who could be a lot of fun and, you know, quirky and funny. She, she had a lot of anxiety and depressive swings that she was good at hiding sometimes. But, you know, the thing in my house was... And I think where I got good at reading emotions and things like that was like, let's not set her off. <laughs> you know, that was that was my dad. My dad didn't want to deal with that. And it was always, you know, don't set your mom off. So, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of what I learned as a as a child was to read people, read their body language, read the way they say things, see what their face looks like when something is said to them, like, a, you know. Oh, did that hurt their feelings? So I got pretty good at, at reading people in that sense. But yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it absolutely caused issues down the line in other areas. But yeah, but that, that's where we're different. I'm, I'm kind of a city slicker. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a very common trauma response. And whether you have ADHD or autism or anything along those lines, when you learn to fear or be open, be wary of we can see those signs it's a it's a survival mechanism and it you know depending on what level of issues that you have with different you know social situations some people can be more aware of it than others and i think that's kind of what actually saved me Hmm. was the autistic side of the things I struggled with, right? Recognizing social cues, social appropriate responses, uh, sarcasm, like recognizing those things and learning not to take things so literal when people would say things to me was really hard at first for me. And I knew enough that I didn't want to set my dad off. Mm. My mom actually was the one who was like, Hey, look, please don't make your dad angry. Yeah. And for me, I just didn't understand what I was doing that would make him angry. Mm. And the impulsivity of the ADHD would have me doing things that legitimately should make somebody angry. 
right? My dad had this old bus that he used as like kind of essentially a tool storage and old part storage for the for the vehicles that he would work on. And he sectioned it off and he had done a pretty decent job putting things where it was supposed to go. And me and my buddy got the wild idea that we were just going to shatter all the windows out of it. Well, yeah. when you shatter all the windows out of the bus, now rain can get in. You, you can't put car parts in there because they're going to get rained on. Yeah. The response, however, completely blown out of proportion. Right. And the the thing is about kids, especially kids with ADHD or aut- and, and or autism, is from a very young age, when people think about discipline, the older generations think that spanking is a good thing to do. It's what you're supposed to do. We need to... You know, if you spare, spare the, rod, the rod, you spoil the child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and growing up in a religious, funda- you know, community, that was the general consensus. Like, if you were a kid and you did something stupid, you got a beating. The problem with that is when you have ADHD or autism or any kind of neurodivergence that affects memory and social situations and the specific consequences for your actions the impulsivity and things of that nature when you do something especially if it's something where it was just an impulsive thing that you didn't really even think about you just did it yeah and then you get in trouble and they hit you you don't actually have the mental and memory awareness to understand why they hit you that makes sense you've you eventually learn it but as a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old, all you know is that the person that you're supposed to trust the most in the world just hit you. Yeah. And for you, there's no attachment to a reason. I don't know why you just hit me. Right. Now, the reason may be you didn't come to me whenever I said to. You took something that wasn't, my, uh, that wasn't yours or you did dishes or you didn't do the the thing I asked you to do. And when you have to, when you're dealing with an abusive parent, you build a distrust and fear towards that parent because you don't know why they hit you. You just know that they hit you yeah. and you can't trust them. Right. And then that makes you do other things, but then you don't talk to them about it. You don't, you don't tell the truth when they asked you why you did it or anything along those lines. Yeah, It also fosters, I think, this distrust overall in people, you know, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Cause that's the, that's the people who are supposed to love you no matter what, uh, protect you no matter what. And if you don't understand when they react that way, now it's, you know, okay, how am I going to protect myself from everyone? Yep. And then on top of that, we have to then look at when we are in our neurodevelopment, our development stages between the ages of four and 12, the level of self-awareness for people with ADHD and autism is drastically lower than their neurotypical counterparts for a lot longer. So where we may have, we may physically be age four, we have the mentality of a two-year-old. Hmm. When we're six, we may have that, uh, the mentality of a three to five-year-old. Yeah. And there can be a pretty drastic change or difference in our executive function, our cognitive functions, our social functions, you know, emotional dysregulation is a serious issue, especially mm. if there's abuse in a, a, a system. And there are these neurotypical expectations that 
a lot of people, parents and teachers, are told by doctors of what to expect when you're expecting, right? You know that book. Yeah. Those milestones that you're supposed to be able to reach can be drastically different. And if you're not meeting those expectations and you're in a situation where a parent is easily frustrated or easily angered or an alcoholic abuser, they lash out at you. Mm. But you you also have teachers and other adults in your life and your peers who get really confused by why you can't seem to grasp basic things, especially mm. social things. So, yeah. I, I can attest to um, that I used to get a lot of flack in school from teachers, mostly because I'm very good. I'm still, if you give me some creative or something abstract, I'm very good at figuring out abstract concepts. But you give me the, something that's straightforward and they look at you like, you're way too smart to be this stupid. You know, like, right. And it hurts dad, inside. Like as yeah. a kid, you're like, well, I am stupid then. You know, it's, it's this or that. My dad's favorite phrase for me was, you're the smartest dumb person I ever met. Yeah. And like the thing is, is as we're developing through that time, because of our lack of self-awareness, because that's a part of the executive function, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, mm-hmm. we don't easily develop a concept of self and identity. Yes. Like neurotypical people do. Yeah. Like it's 60% environment for neurotypical people. And then 40% input for people with ADHD. It's more like 90% of input from those around us. Yeah. I would say I tried to study people around me to understand how you were supposed to act and what type of person you're supposed to be. Right. And if you're not doing a good job and the people around you are giving you a lot of negative criticism and negative feedback, you develop a pretty serious issue of negative self image. Mm And this is really the basis for one of the biggest struggles with for people with ADHD is that imposter syndrome that follows us throughout the rest of our lives. And for me, though, you were talking about this earlier, reading body language. This is, again, where ADHD kind of helped me because when we first got a computer, when I was like 12, I got access to the Internet. And when I started looking at stuff, I started falling, falling down these rabbit holes of information. And I was super smart and I didn't realize that this was a weird thing about me. But when people read a book, they like read a sentence at a time, right? Left to right. I read a paragraph at a time. Mm -hmm. So I look at a paragraph and I, I don't know how this works. My brain is weird, but I can see the entire paragraph and I gain essentially imagery of what's going on in that world. And for me, this was escapism as a child. I would escape into the fantasy worlds of the images that I could make and the movies that I could design in my brain from the books I was reading. What this translates to, though, is is a methodology of being able to learn things at an accelerated rate. And so I was considered gifted, right? Air quotes there, y'all. And because of that, it was so confusing for my teachers and it was so confusing for my friends Because I would talk about these super advanced concepts. I had a college level reading level in uh, sixth grade. My teachers didn't get it. My friends didn't get it. But one of the things that I fell into when I'm doing research on the computer was I I watched Oprah. She did a show on body language and, um, you know, human lie detectors and different things of that Mm -hmm. nature. And I started looking that up and I started reading everything. 
And so I artificially created the system of how to recognize the social cues of those people around me based off body language. Mm. Two caveats to this. One, children and teens don't have quite the same body language as adults. And when you make a mistake in that kind of situation where you're trying, where you're thinking that you're making the right call for the appropriate reaction and it's the wrong call, kids are assholes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so I still dealt with a lot of people who would bully me mm. up until eighth grade when I got swole. <laughs> yeah. I started playing football in seventh grade. My dad was just like, oh, well, you're doing something I love. Let's get you in shape. He was into it, yeah. But my dad's idea of getting me in shape was like literal hard labor. So he would wait. So in the summertime, he would wake me up at 4 a.m. We would go to the, uh, the forest. We would cut down trees. I would have to haul logs and different things like that all over the place. Yeah. And then at 10 a.m., when we got done with that and we dropped a load off to my uncle's sawmill, I would then work at the sawmill. And I would be lifting up tie uh, logs and stuff like that and flipping ties, which are the, the rectangle uh, cubes of cut down wood and like all of the different things. And that kind of labor and that kind of stuff that you're doing builds muscle. Yes. Yeah. And it also wore me out. And then I was exhausted and my dad didn't have to deal with my ass. So win-win for my dad. <laughs> And so when I got into eighth grade, I walked in there and I was only about 5'8", but I was about 185 and I was just in really good shape. Yeah. And then that caused people to pause before they would pick on me because I had also developed a pretty serious temper mm. if you pushed me too far. Yeah. And I developed a sense of what I'm supposed to do when people disrespect me. In ninth grade, after another year of this kind of workout, I walked into school at six foot and 235 pounds somewhere in that range i was swole yeah and i had carried over a lot of rage and so what i decided to do since i had this huge sense of justice i had this innate sense of body language i would bully the bullies and this developed a social circle for me because all of the nerds and outcasts and everybody who would get bullied would just congregate you, around me you were the hero yeah and so I kind of built this tribe of misfits and outcasts where we would just be in this one area and we would have a lot of fun and we would build friendships and develop relationships and all these other things. And people respected me and I was able to take care of them and I was able to protect them, which empowered me mm -hmm. in some ways. Yeah. We're still dealing with the school system because they didn't quite understand why I could read so well, but I couldn't do basic pre pre-calculus or pre-algebra or anything with letters in it math-wise. Oh, God, I hate that stuff, honestly. Right. I, I can do division. Yeah, I can do it multiplication, in my head. All easy. that stuff in my head. But when it came to, like, as soon as they started adding letters to mathematics, it was too much for my brain, and I would just shut the fuck down. So would they yeah. accuse you of just being lazy at that point? Yeah. Is that what you got? Yeah, a lot of people do that. You're lazy. Yeah. And so what I what I know now is that's really normal for people with ADHD and autism. Yeah. Is that, that negative talk and everything. By the age of twelve, your average neurodivergent child has been has had twenty thousand more negative criticisms levied against them throughout their life. Right. More than neurotypical kids. 
Right. And yeah, like you said, that, that carries with you. Yeah, I got, you know, I have to say, like, when people would, would call me lazy or something, especially your parents or something, when it came to, to your schoolwork and stuff. I mean, what happens is you sit there and you're like, I'm looking at this. I don't understand it. And then you're trying to hide the fact that maybe you're stupid. And that's, that's where imposter syndrome comes in. And then you're, you know, you're self-talking like, why do I understand this concept? But I can't get the basic concept here. And it just, it causes so much internal strife inside. So, you know, you carry that all the time. I'll give you a great example of this. My math teacher would require me to show my math when I was doing long division and other stuff like that. Hmm. The problem was, is showing my math was really overwhelming because it, it made, it forced me to break my math down Hmm. into a system that they taught. However, I didn't do math like they did. Yeah. Like the, the math in my brain is completely different. And when I would try to break that down, I couldn't break it down. And so I just didn't do it. And so I would get in so much trouble for that. I would actually fail tests because I couldn't show, show my math. And so that was one of those things where my teachers were so confused because the answers would be correct. But they didn't understand why I couldn't do something so basic as breaking down the math. Yeah. It cluttered up the page for you probably and caused your brain to to be scrambled at that point, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I know what you mean because I actually have this trouble with my kids' homework where I'm like, they want it a specific way. And I'll be like, but I'm getting the same answer and it's faster. I don't understand why you're telling me I can't do it this way. Like, who cares? The end result is to get the answer. But they I'll tell you right now, a specific way. Yeah, I'll tell you right now. I've got twin uh, toddlers; they're four years old. They just started pre-K. Okay. The second they get into a place where they're uh, they are having to show their work and everything, and they don't do that, and the teachers get onto them about it, I'm going to get in there, and there's going to be this, a lot of words said, and I'm not going to be nice about it. Yeah, That's a trigger point for me, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so. no, I can I can see that. They have something very. Um, oh God, I forget what they call it around here. But it's so basic to the point of it's lunacy. It's so many steps. And I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to give them this basis so later on they can do the short version of it. But I'm like, I'm like, dude, who cares? Like, if I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has to be the same. <laughs> we could we could have different thoughts. But if we're getting to the solution, it doesn't really matter to me. Yeah, and I didn't develop that understanding until I was 25 years old. Oh, yeah. Like, so my older teen years and getting out of school was really chaotic. My mom and dad got a divorce when I was 16. My mom essentially abandoned me when I was, eight, uh, like, just after I turned 18. And I was still in high school. I developed a raging drug habit. And after school, I just essentially wandered. I just was everywhere. And I was homeless multiple times mm-hmm. and I was like, I was couch surfing for the large majority of it. And like what a lot of people don't understand about ADHD is whenever you get out of the structure of school mm-hmm. and get into the real world. And if you don't have a continuing structure system put in place, like what you learn from early intervention therapy and mm-hmm. uh, resources for from school for people with ADHD and autism that we have now, if you don't have that structure in place, you just kind of, explode yeah. and if you get married young which is 
one of those things that when you're a kid in uh, the South is a real high likelihood. Right. Now you're introducing a family system into the uh, into the situation, and that is catastrophic for most of us. Well, I think I read somewhere that ADHD people tend to be attracted to someone who has structure and mm-hmm. is good at like executive functioning things, you know, which would make sense because it's like you're trying to learn that, understand how that works with somebody, right? Like that's that's part of what we do. We're trying watching somebody saying, oh, that's the way they do that. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't figure that out on my own. So. The thing that we're dealing with a lot of times there is exactly what you're saying. One of the things that we deal with as a kid as well is masking, Mm. right? We become kind of a social chameleon so that we can fit in. The thing is, is with masking, it takes a lot of mental energy out of Mm -hmm. us a lot because every minute thing that somebody does, we have to adjust our mask a little bit for it. And so the mask never looks quite right. Right. It's just is like one little piece, and that makes people feel really uncomfortable because they feel like you're being fake, which technically speaking, you are being fake, but it, it's a survival mechanism, not malicious intent. I, I say yes and no to that because I think the neurodivergent person sometimes doesn't understand who they are at all. You know what I mean? So it's like you are trying on the mask to see if this one works. But yeah, you know, I could fit in with like any crowd. I know what you mean, like a chameleon. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't like when the the crowds would start to mix together because it was like, I was this person to hear. This is the Mm -hmm. side of me that they can see. This is the side that, you know, I like sports. I had my sports friends. I had my music friends. I had this and that. Yeah. That's that's what I mean about there's small little gaps in there that people can see. And that makes people feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like, is he being real with me or is he being real with them? And that little idiosyncrasy of ours and it is because we don't really know ourselves all right. we know are these very negative criticisms of ourselves and so the mask is to protect us from being judged for those things so that we don't do them anymore right and we don't know who we are we do we just try to fit in so that we can move forward well that's where you know, i thought it was interesting when i was reading some of your blogs that you wrote you talk about the emotional sensitivity in uh, ADHD people, or there was a term you threw out there, rejection, sensitivity, dysmor- uh, dysphoria, or RSD, mm-hmm. which, yeah, you know, I can see that there's heightened emotional experiences for for somebody who's neurodivergent, whether it's ADHD or autism or something like that. It's something that, that stuck with me was you wrote something about the role, I, I think it triggers and always almost being in either fight or flight. I think it was fight or fear. And was it fight or fix? I think there was a couple, mm-hmm. uh, there was a couple of them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's always a, a sense of, you know, I'm, I'm super aware of my surroundings at all times, all the time. And I, I know what's going on behind me. I know what's going on over here. And well, I make no bones about it. I'm a pretty big proponent of this. So, I ended up in, I ended up going to therapy in my late thirties, especially when my mother was sick. That's when I I really wanted to go because I had to work some shit out. And I remember being shocked, you know, in your head, or at least in my head, when you're talking about the mask or, or something, you throw something out there, but it's calculated what you're saying. And there's a script. And I can think on the top of my head about 
I would have five different answers ready to go in a second thinking about like, this is what they're going to say. This is what they're going to say, or this is what they're going to say. And this is what I say to that. And if they didn't say that, my mind was like, oh shit. And I remember my therapist saying, do you know how much energy that takes to do that? Like to just, he's like, you're never in the moment at that point. He's like, you're always just like in the future at that point, looking for something because the mental stress that develops with that is, is so much more than you would even understand. Mm -hmm. We build a a certain level of resilience and, this is often due to the trauma response to our upbringing and things along those lines. Uh, for the longest time, I actually had a grade that would be put on people who were around me from 1 to 10 based on how dangerous I thought they were to me or the people mm. around me. You know, that whole yes. you know, bully the bully thing. And that that followed, that actually, they still do it. It's just not as big of a deal anymore. And... Like, I only care about sevens and up. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but when we do those kinds of things, when we're kind of like in our heads and stuff like that, if that follows us through the rest of our lives and we're just undiagnosed, we can come off super paranoid hmm. and very, very anxious. And this is actually one of the bases where a lot of anxiety comes from for people with ADHD. Yeah. Is that that not knowing and not being able to sit here and gauge the right response and all of the mental energy that it takes from that. We develop these severe issues with anxiety, especially social anxiety. And as we get older, it gets harder because we're in office situations. We're in more social situations where there's different people around. And that level of mental energy usually just kind of breaks something. even. Yeah. And like, and we find ourselves in these really bad situations often. I'll give you an example. So when I was 21, I met this woman. I was back in, I was back in church and I was going to seminary. I was trying to become a preacher. And she and I, it was just so interesting because we had talked multiple times before, but she'd always like turned me down. But I did something one time and it just stuck in her head and she actually like enjoyed the attention I gave her. And so I started dating her and it was, it was really crazy. Mm. I did that thing that a lot of people with ADHD do in relationships when they first happen is I hyper-focus on Hyper-focus, yeah. And that is really intense for a lot of people. Yeah. And that level of hyper-focus can turn some people off. And it can also turn into kind of a situation of love bombing, where the person that they are at first isn't the same person they are later on down the road. They drastically change their personality or habits or anything along those lines when they start getting really comfortable in the relationship and can start being their kind of authentic self Hmm. and kind of going back to what you said earlier we, we look for people who are very organized when you are first dating somebody and you're coming off very put together and all of those different things that person is like oh okay cool and this also is really affected by online dating when you can read an entire profile about a person and have this really good concept of what they're expecting oh i can do all of those things yeah and yeah. so that's kind of what had happened here. And then about six to eight months later, when we were really seriously in the relationship and living together, I got comfortable. Yeah. And I didn't hyper-focus on her anymore. And that was not okay. That's actually when she started abusing me. 
And I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't know what to do about things when she started trying to isolate me from my friends. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do when she would start yelling at me. In fact, it would just trigger the shit out of my emotional uh, uh, dysregulation. And I would yell back. And we were just really toxic like from the get. But I was raised that when you were with a person that you were supposed to be with them. And if it was a serious situation where you're developing a relationship where it sounds like marriage is down the road, or if you suddenly find yourself with a woman who's pregnant, Mm. I've got to get married to this person. The church tells me I have to get married to this person. My mom and dad tell me I have to get married to this girl because I can't be a deadbeat dad. Yeah. And so I wound up getting married to her and the abuse continued. So was was it like a psychological or an emotional abuse type of deal? It's the, yeah. Women tend to lean into emotional, uh, mental abuse and rarely do physical abuse. It happens. And men tend to do the opposite. They do more physical abuse, you know, emotional abuse, uh, you know, primarily. And that, I didn't know that that was, I was being abused because if you look at my childhood, this is what was my normal. Like mothers and fathers are supposed to yell and scream at each other. And mothers and fathers are supposed to be stressed out and frustrated all the time. And it took me a few years before I started realizing there was something seriously wrong with this relationship. And, um, we wound up getting divorced. I think there's also an issue where if you don't know yourself completely or at least well, you don't know what you're supposed to take and what you're not supposed to take, right? You don't have the boundaries set anywhere. Like this is, this is a line that nobody can cross on me. And yeah. And you think maybe you deserve that or like, you know, I deserved it you, later on when you calm down and you start really thinking about it. I deserve that, you know? Um, yeah. but I could see that too with the, with the, what you're talking about, the love bombing and the hyper focus and, like you said, I mean, it could turn somebody off, but the people who, you know, like a lot of times you forget, like, you're the perfect guy for like six months. You're the perfect person. And then it's like, yeah, that guard goes down and it's like, oh, you're not, you're not that perfect. <laughs> like, you're like not. why can't you keep a job? Why can't yeah. you, you know, why can't you just do these basic things? I just need you to clean the kitchen. I need, yeah. And here's the thing. The, the people who really love the intensity of the hyper-focus in the beginning of the relationship, that intensity, mm. there is a large number of those people who have, have different personality disorders. And that can cause a huge number of issues. Daddy issues. <laughs> Stuff like that. No, not, no, not necessarily uh, you know, daddy issues, but narcissistic personality dis- mm. disorder. They love that attention that you give them. And in fact, a lot of people with ADHD fall into those traps really often, men and women alike. Mm -hmm. And that attention that they're getting or the subservience that they're getting can really endear them to that person. And if that attention ever goes away from them, that's usually when the other side of the coin flips out. And a lot of people with ADHD find themselves in relationships with narcissists and uh, other people with other personality disorders where as soon as things start growing south for the other person, it is your fault. Yeah. And if you have a trauma history, that makes you fall into that trap. Like, this is what I deserve. Like you said, this is what I'm supposed to have. This is what a, you know, this is what a relationship is supposed to be. Yeah. 
the final trigger for me with her was like I had finally developed my my business acumen. Mm-hmm. I had figured out that I was really good at being a project manager. I had started finding jobs that fit my criteria for work. And I had under, started understanding that I didn't like doing jobs that were, you know, longer than a year. Mm-hmm. A lot of people with ADHD are like this. They actually bounce from job to job it's to job, not just because get bored. Yeah, it's boring. Yeah, they get bored. They've already learned everything, even if it was something they enjoyed at first. The excitement is in the learning process, right? Yeah. Right. And I had started understanding that I enjoyed doing projects for three to eight months, give or take. And this, you know, because I kind of just like looked at myself and like, why am I not a project? And and started like really kind of gathering data about myself. And this turned into a situation where I'm having this realization of being this project manager and looking at myself in a more objective mindset, and I am seeing the problems that I'm dealing with. I'm seeing the problems I'm dealing with, like memory and stuff like that. So I have to put in place these tools. And that's one of the things I think saved my life was project management coincided so well with my ADHD and autism that just like I had learned about you know body language at 12, I started learning about myself at 25. And... I started looking at my relationship with my wife and I saw all the problems and I saw how many of them weren't mine. And then about a year later, I found a bunch of emails that she had from all the different guys and girls. She was cheating on and that destroyed the relationship. Yeah. That was the beginning of the future for me though. Yeah. That, that year of recovering from her and getting over that and then, Going into back into project management and working with companies for only three to eight months allowed me to have a lot more ease of my mental space. And I had a lot more mental energy and I had a lot more like self-reflection time. And I started just realizing that I needed to be okay with who I was. Hmm. I still didn't know I had ADHD, by the way. Okay. Um, but I, I just knew I was different and that was okay. I just yeah. kind of gained that understanding over like about a, two years of reflection. And then when I was 30, my son, the teacher calls me and my, and my oldest son, she said, hey, I think your son has ADHD. And I knew that his mother wasn't going to be there for him because she didn't believe in mental illness. She definitely didn't believe in medication or anything like that. And so I started learning everything there was about ADHD. I wanted to be that dad that my son needed me to be. And the more I learned about ADHD, though, the more I started seeing a lot of different signs. And along the way, I had met this amazing woman who, when she read my dating profile, absolutely loved it. And she liked me. And I had put on my dating profile exactly who I was with no apologies. And my boundary was like, please respect me for who I am and don't try to change me. And we had been together for a couple of years at this point. And I went, I walked into there and I was like, I think I have ADHD. And she was like, oh, honey, you didn't know? I'm like, no, I didn't know. She's like, I knew from the first time I read your uh, dating profile. And I'm like, why didn't you say something? And she was like, because I thought you were being a dude about it. And I was like, okay, that's fair. And the thing is, is my wife is, my current wife is a special needs teacher. So she recognized all the signs. So she was okay with it. Yeah. Right. And, but she made me feel safe. And that was kind of where, all right, what's next? Next was hell because I understood what I was, uh, who I was at 30 with ADHD. 
I didn't get diagnosed with ADHD until I was 34. It took that long to find a psychiatrist who would even believe that an adult could have ADHD. First psychiatrist diagnosed me with depression. Second diagnosed me with bipolar. Third one was like, "Ah, well, let's look into what's going on with you. And I was like, I think I have ADHD. I've told the other two doctors this, and they completely ignored it. And they put me on medications that made me just really out there. First doctor put me on SSRI, and that was horrifying. And it's horrifying for a lot of people with ADHD, by the way. It can really badly react with your brain chemistry. And the second one thought I was bipolar because I had had manic episodes on SSRIs. Yeah. And so they tried me on other medications. And then the third doctor, I just walked in there and I said, look, I am fairly certain I have ADHD. I Please just test me for ADHD. And they were like, okay, cool. And so they sat down and, and tested me. And as they're going through and testing me there, she pulls out another sheet of paper and she starts writing notes in it as well. And I'm kind of like, and so she asked me different questions and I answered and they're all social related. Yeah. And, and so she was like, I am fairly certain you have ADHD. And she was, I think you have autistic uh, spectrum disorder as well. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Right. Cause like when I think about autistic uh, spectrum disorder, I think about rain man, y'all. I don't know about anybody else. Like that's the, literally the first image. I, I think I'm me and you that. grew up and that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so, but I didn't have that. I was personable. I understood people. I could talk to people. I was, you know, extrovert, all this other stuff. And then she was like, it's, it's actually more common with ADHD than you knew. Hmm. And I was like, Oh, she was, yeah, they're comorbid. They, they're, they're almost always, there's like 40% likelihood if you have ADHD that you have autism. If you have autism, it's 25% likely that you also have ADHD. Yeah. So like, it, ah. it, it was interesting because I kind of diagnosed myself just by the research. Um, but when I first went to a, a psychiatrist, yeah, they, they threw me on the SSRIs. They said, oh, you're, you're depressed and you have anxiety. And I'm like, all right, I mean, there's bouts of anxiousness. And this was when my mother had just passed away and she, she had died of Parkinson's, which was horrible. And I was, I was the person who handled everything because, you know, my dad wasn't going to handle it and my, my sister didn't at the time and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I was definitely not in the best of moods. So I said, okay. And I remember taking, uh, Zoloft. And it just makes, it just made me, it didn't, like, I didn't want to hurt myself or anything. But if you told me on a given day, like, today you're going to get hit by a car and die, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, that's that's just what life is. You know, it's like, it just almost made me so null of any kind of emotion that I did it for a few months and I said that this isn't working, like, something's wrong. Like, I just remember being at work and not caring about anything and i you know at the time i was doing some sales stuff too and it was like yeah i don't i don't care you know go somewhere else and you know you can't have that attitude but i I was there i mean it it was partly where my brain was too but yeah i stopped that and then you know i started looking into things and i was talking to the uh, psychiatrist and first well they did try me on just straight adderall and the the i didn't love Adderall as far. I mean, I liked it in sometimes, but like there were times where it was just, it was too much. Um, I got onto a dose of Vyvanse and it was like, my world was just so different. And I remember my wife laughing because she was like, <laughs> like, I remember when I was first on it, putting together Ikea furniture. And I can tell you right now, 
I would rather burn Ikea furniture than try to put it together. But she, I was like, do not help me. Because I started putting it together and it was starting to go. And I'm like, I, I just have to see if I can do this whole thing. But it was just weird. Like, I could see the picture. I could put the picture, the puzzles together. Yeah, and that, that totally changed my life as far as even professionally. I just was a totally different person. Yeah, same here. Like, yeah. when I started my medication, now I will say it took me a long time on my medication as well. It took me like two and a half years. It does take a while, yeah. Yeah, and it's really important for people to understand that. We're playing with brain chemistry here, right? And when you're playing with brain chemistry, look, the science is really there solidly for a large number of different disorders. Yeah. It's not there whenever it comes to ADHD. Yeah. And the thing is, the thing that complicated it for me was also being autistic. Mm. And so after we went through all these different drugs and like I had issues with like suicidal ideation mm. where This is a reminder. Give me your tasks. Sorry, my That's reminder to review my task and calendar and stuff like yeah. that. You should leave that in, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I might. <laughs> no, um, no. but the thing is, is the reason I was struggling so much with medication was because there was so much more that I needed because mm. of autistic traits that I had. And medication doesn't treat autistic traits. No. There, and what I really had to understand at this point, and this was now year six of me studying ADHD and now autism is medication is just a small part of the equation. Agree a thousand percent. When you're dealing with ADHD and autism, there has to be a large chunk of therapy involved mm. with an ADHD informed therapist, preferably doing something along the cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy and either another therapist who specializes in trauma or the doctor or the therapist that you're seeing also having a, an understanding of trauma. Mm. Because we have to process each and every one of those aspects of our neurodivergence separately. Because, yeah, granted, some of the things that you learn, the life skills and things like that that you learn from ADHD can transfer into autistic uh, traits as well. But there's the social aspect from autistic traits that you have to uh, to work on and develop and understand. And then there's the trauma aspects that you have to work through and figure out and understand. And mm. if you have other things that like depression or anxiety or other issues like PTSD, like you have to figure out how to treat all of the different things. And most of it is therapy. Yeah, I agree. And that also includes like emotional dysregulation, which is a huge aspect of ADHD and autism and PTSD. And emotional dysregulation is literally how our brain is structured to react to situations. Mm. And it's made worse by trauma. Now, we were talking about this earlier. Everybody around us gets a certain grade and things along those lines. And a lot of people with ADHD also have like anger issues where they explode and different things like that. And what I was starting to learn and understand through therapy was all of my struggles with all of the different things, like getting tired of hobbies, you know, jumping from relationship to relationship, jumping from job to job, jumping, you know, doing all these different things is largely due to emotional dysregulation mm -hmm. and how our brain works when it comes to motivation and doing things. Yeah. You know, when we factor in things like time blindness and, you know, the different aspects of trying to get ourselves to do certain things and all of those different issues. 
when we don't understand enough about a situation or a, or, or a, a project or things of that nature, it gets really overwhelming. And when it gets really overwhelming, we start stressing out and getting frustrated. And when you're stressed out and frustrated, your emotional dysregulation heightens all that stuff. Yes. Because we feel things more. Anger, frustration, stress, anxiety, depression. We also feel the other side of the coin, though. Happiness, yes. joy, love. You know, we enjoy life a lot more when we are much more well-regulated. And the biggest struggle I was having was they were trying me on medications to help with emotional regulation. And I eventually did find one that worked for me. But it was the therapy that taught me how to recognize my triggers. Yeah. Right. What would trigger my anger? What would trigger my happiness? And I looked for the things that trigger my happiness. And I started working on really developing an understanding of how to process frustration and stress in healthy ways. Exercise, mm -hmm. meditation, journaling. I know a lot of y'all just rolled your eyes at me. I can't help it. Get the <laughs> fuck over it, y'all. Like, look, it's true. these things look. work because they work, right? Yeah. And But nobody's, a lot of people aren't at that place in their mind where they can consistently journal because they have the misconception of what journaling is and it's super overwhelming. And then they're just like, oh, fuck it. I don't want to well, do it. Well, I think some of it is they're barraged with images of of this stuff too on like Facebook and everywhere. And you're like, oh, God damn it. Like, you know. yeah, it, 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 it's overwhelming. And yeah. again, this is an emotional dysregulation issue at mm -hmm. this point, because the more stress and frustration that you have in your life, the more likely your brain is going to get overwhelmed. The more likely your brain is getting overwhelmed, the more likely you are to burn out. And when we burn out, it can cause actually physiological uh, symptoms of different things like, fibromyalgia or migraines mm. or other issues like that. It can literally shut us down. It is literally a broken leg of the mind. Yes. And when you're burnt out and as a man, you're told that you just have to fight through it. Yeah. You just have to keep running on that broken leg. And then it gets worse and worse because we're running on this broken leg. Now we're tearing muscles and we're destroying other things. And I don't mean like it's your like pinky toe here, y'all. I mean like your femur mm. <laughs> like or your knee. Like it's a serious injury for us because, again, we feel things more. Our brain is literally wired to feel things more. Okay, so I'm going to stop this here because there's still a lot more to go. But I feel it breaks down perfectly between two different episodes. The next one with more of a focus on the management part or looking for strategies for living with ADHD. So look out for that in the next few days. And as always, thank you for listening. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. support.